The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. First and foremost, Christianity is a religion of the mind. It is a religion of how we think, what we think about reality, what we think about spiritual things, what we think about religion. Um, So it's a religion of the mind. And our thought life is what God is always after, our minds. If, If God can control our minds and what we think, God can control our hearts and our passions and our actions. And Satan also knows the same thing. And that's why Satan, first and foremost, is after the minds and the thought life of people because Satan knows the same thing. If he can control the minds and the thought life of a person, he can pretty much control their life. So in John 8, when Jesus said, Know the truth, the truth will set you free. First and foremost, it's truth about Jesus Christ. What we think about Jesus is the most important thing in the world. And what we think about Jesus needs to be biblically accurate. The only thing that we can know with certainty about Jesus Christ, who he was in his ministry and how he conducted himself when he lived on planet Earth, can only be found in the Bible and Scripture. It's the only source. There are no other historical documents that give us anything with integrity or credibility or accuracy about who Jesus was and what he did. It only comes from Scripture. So that's our source of truth, knowing about Jesus. And if we add to the truth about Jesus add to Scripture, we're headed down a dangerous path. And if we detract from what Scripture says about Jesus, the same thing is true. We're headed down a path of destruction. Uh, Throughout church history, the last 2,000 years, many people have come along and promoted things that weren't true about Jesus, and they have challenged this statement, know the truth, and the truth will set you free. False views of who Jesus was, what he did, have been perpetuated and propagated, and some have become traditional and cultural legends and myths and even supposed truisms, and people are hearing these all the time, and these false things about Jesus, sometimes they believe, just came straight from the Bible. I was reminded of this when this week I saw a commercial for uh, the latest, newest Jesus movie. Like, we need another Jesus movie. There's only been 50 of them in the last 50 years. (laughs) Some worse than others. So this one coming out uh, is called The Son of God. It's coming out in February. Um, Apparently Jesus was a Caucasian with blue eyes. I didn't know that. Um, And spoke spoke British with a British accent. Um, So I don't know what that movie's all about or what it's based on. But a lot of those movies have uh, put things in there that were not true of Jesus, making them say things were not in Scripture. And actually, you know, a lot of people that don't know the Bible, don't know Scripture, they go and they see the movie, oh, I guess that's what Jesus was all about and that's what he believed and that's what he taught so that's why it's so dangerous other things that have been taught and promoted and widely believed about jesus uh, would include some of the following jesus was a muslim that's what islam says and believes in his in their quran they say that jesus was a muslim he was one of the most faithful muslims but that's not true jesus was not a muslim uh, other religions gnosticism early on and has even been perpetuated say that jesus was just a spirit and didn't actually have a physical body It's actually a common belief throughout history. Uh, Another dominant religion here in America says that Jesus at one time was an angel, Michael the Archangel, as a matter of fact, and then became kind of reincarnated as Jesus the person. That's false. Uh, Another dominant uh, religion here in America says that Jesus was married while he was on earth and even had at least three wives that we know of, one of those being Mary Magdalene. That is not true. Jesus was not married. He remained single his whole life. Uh, Even And then a couple of other movies has... uh, popular ones, the Da Vinci Code and others, trying to say things about Christ that were not true. 
So that's why we need to go to Scripture, know the truth. And so the passage that we're going to look at today, Luke chapter 2, uh, verse 39 and following, tells us a very significant event that is true about Jesus because there's a lot of mystery. There's a lot of silence in Scripture from the time of Christ's birth till he began his ministry when he was 30 years old. There's just this basically a 30-year gap of silence. And so throughout history, a lot of people tried to fill in the gaps with speculation and supposed revelations from God, and that's how they came up with a lot of these stories and traditions that aren't true. I didn't grow up in a Bible-believing home or a born-again Christian home, but I did have religion growing up. And so I remember when I was in elementary school, there were a couple, we were taught to believe in Jesus. And so I believed in Jesus. I didn't know much about Jesus from Scripture, but it was mostly legends and man-made religion that I was taught. But I, I believed things about Jesus. Here's one that I actually believed. Uh, I think I was taught this in third grade, second or third grade. I'll never forget it. Uh, it's from a so-called scriptural gospel from the second century. So this is like a hundred years after Christ. Supposedly this uh, disciple of Christ named Thomas wrote a gospel and gives us information about things Jesus did while he was a child. Things not in your Bible. So I would say these things are not true, but they have been passed on for centuries to be true. I believed this was true when I heard it in second grade. I believed it was true until I was 19 when I read the New Testament for the first time, and I was like, whoa, where did that, that story's not in here. Did I miss that? And then came to realize, no, that story's not biblical. So here's this story about Jesus' childhood from the so-called Gospel of Thomas. The stories of Thomas the Israelite, the philosopher, concerning the works of the childhood of the Lord. Chapter 1, verse 1 and following. I, Thomas the Israelite, tell unto you, even all the brethren that are the Gentiles to make known unto you the works of the childhood of our Lord Jesus Christ and his mighty deeds, even all that he did when he was born in our land. Whereof the beginning is thus. This little child Jesus, when he was five years old, says the Gospel of Thomas, was playing at the ford of a brook. So he's supposedly Jesus is playing in the river like kids do when he's five years old. And Jesus gathered together the waters that flowed there into pools and made them straightway clean. So he purified them instantaneously. Poof! Miracle, supposedly. And he commanded the waters by his word alone. And having made soft clay from the water and the dirt, Jesus fashioned thereof twelve sparrows. So he, you know, we make mud pies when we're kids. Well, Jesus made mud pigeons or sparrows when he was five. And it was the Sabbath when he did these things or made these sparrows out of mud. And there were also many other little children playing with him. And a certain Jew, when he saw what Jesus did, playing upon the Sabbath day, departed straightway and told his father Joseph, Lo, your child is at the brook, and he hath taken clay and fashioned twelve little birds, and hath polluted the Sabbath day. And Joseph came to the place and saw, and cried out to Jesus, saying, Wherefore doest thou these things on the Sabbath, which it is not lawful to do? Shame on you, Jesus. You don't make pigeons on the Sabbath day, is what Joseph was supposedly saying to Jesus. And that, but Jesus clapped his hands together, the five-year-old, and cried out to the sparrows and said to them, Go, poof, be gone. I'm adding a little bit there. And the mud sparrows took their flight and went away chirping. And when the Jews saw it, they were amazed and they departed and told their chief men that which they had seen Jesus do. Wow. Here's, here's one more. This was all, I was also taught this when I was younger and believed it for years. 
Uh, after that, again, Jesus went through the village and a child ran and dashed into his shoulder. So Jesus bumps into some neighborhood kid. And Jesus was provoked and said unto him, Thou shalt not finish thy course. And immediately the boy fell down and died. So Jesus, <laughs> take that, you bully. I'm not making this up. And immediately the boy fell down and died. But certain when they saw what was done said, Whence was this young child born? For that every word on his is an accomplished work. And the parents of him that was dead came unto Joseph and blamed him, saying... So the dead kid's parents come to Jesus' parents, Joseph and Mary, and they were mad at Jesus. You need to control your kid. He's going around killing neighborhood kids. <laughs> and they blamed him, saying... Thou that hast such a child canst not dwell with us in the village, or do you teach him to bless and not to curse? For he slayeth our children. And Joseph called the young child apart and admonished him, saying, So Joseph starts giving little Jesus a lecture. Wherefore doest thou such things, that these suffer and hate us and persecute us? But Jesus said, I know that these thy words are not thine. Nevertheless, for thy sake I will hold my peace. But they shall bear their punishment, and straightway, they that accused him were smitten with blindness. And they that saw it were sore afraid and perplexed and said concerning him that every word which he spake, whether it were good or bad, was a deed and became a marvel. And when they saw that Jesus had done so, Joseph arose and took Jesus a hold by the ear and wrung it sore. So Jesus, Joseph supposedly grabs Jesus by the ear and gives him a lecture. And the young child was wroth and angry and said unto his father Joseph, It suffereth thee to seek and not to find, and verily thou hast done unwisely. Knowest thou not, I am thine, vex me not. So anyway, to us that know the Bible, these sound kind of crazy. But just so, so you know, people who don't know the Bible, like me, when I was in second grade, heard this, believed it, embraced it, until age 19 when I read John chapter 2 when it said, Here's the first miracle that Jesus ever did at age 30. He turned water into wine. And then I was liberated in terms of my true view of the Lord Jesus Christ. So uh, it's out there. It is dangerous. Uh, we need to be a discerning people. And so there is only one incident that we know about in the life of Christ from the time of his birth to the time of his public ministry at age 30. And that is given to us by God in Luke chapter 2, verse 39 and following. And God wants us to know it because it has... Tremendous significance. Tremendous significance on why Jesus came to the earth. So let's go ahead and look at it, starting at uh, chapter 2, verse 39. And you can follow along, as I said, in your handout there. Uh, three points that uh, I want to make. And the first, as I take this story, and it's, it's a true story. This is exactly how it happened. Uh, the Spirit of God superintended and enabled this information to be written down with absolute accuracy and inerrancy. The Spirit of God has preserved it for us for 2,000 years. It very well be that Luke uh, got eyewitness testimony from several people, particularly uh, Mary, who is a key uh, person and source of information here. Um, so let's go ahead and look at this story just in three parts in the development of it. The first, uh, I put there, growing up Jewish, verses 39 to 42. So let's uh, follow along. Uh, starting at verse 39, and when they had performed, now they in verse 39, that's Joseph and Mary. Uh, verse 39 is coming on the heels of what just happened. Immediately was the birth of Christ, and then when Jesus was eight days old, he was circumcised, and then they took him to the temple for other uh, 
requirements of Moses. We'll talk about those in just a second. So the they is Joseph and Mary. So when Joseph and Mary had performed everything according to the law, the law of Moses of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own city of Nazareth. So I just want to stop and pause there um, because this is important. God chose Joseph and Mary for a very specific reason. He didn't just pick people randomly. The one who would be the mother of the Messiah had to fulfill a specific role. She had to be Jewish. She had to be a faithful Jew, submissive to the Mosaic law. Uh, and so many other things that played into this in terms of prophecy and, and the role of the Messiah. So uh, one thing that is highlighted and accentuated in the story is the faithfulness in terms of their pure religion of Joseph and Mary. They knew Yahweh. They loved Yahweh. They understood the Old Testament scriptures. They were raised faithful Jews, primarily in Nazareth and in the synagogues of Nazareth where they were educated in the scriptures in the Old Testament and in their faith. Uh, and so with a heart of faith, they diligently believed in the Old Testament. And when the Moses Mosaic law required something, they attended to it. And so that is one of the main things. It's a theme of Luke chapter 2, showing the faithful faith and spirituality of Joseph and Mary Mary being the mother of the Messiah, the human Messiah, the Lord Jesus. So in verse 39, when it says they had performed everything according to the law, that means everything that is given by the Mosaic law in the Old Testament regarding what a Jewish family should do at the time of the birth of a child, especially the birth of a firstborn child, and even more specifically, the firstborn child being a son. Different requirements were mandated by God through Moses. And I just wanted to show you a couple of these because I put growing up Jewish. Jesus came from a Jewish home. Jesus was a full-blooded Jew from a human perspective. Jesus was in a family of faithful Jews who knew and loved Yahweh. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, that, that picks up from first verse 21. What were these things in the Mosaic law required that Joseph and Mary understood and were faithful to obey? Well, the first one in verse 21 of Luke chapter 2. And Jesus was born, and then when he was eight days old, he was circumcised. So when eight days old were completed, before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So the first Mosaic law that they fulfilled on Jesus was circumcision, which was required. I want you to look at Leviticus chapter 12. It's very fascinating because in Leviticus chapter 12, it's a short chapter. It talks about three different things that are required of a Jewish family when a child is born. And all three of these things are fulfilled in Luke chapter 2 with Joseph and Mary. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. So starting at Leviticus uh, chapter 12, verse 1. This is Moses talking to the people of Israel. This is what God requires. This is the Mosaic law. You know, one of the criticisms, one of the main criticisms of Christianity that has been alleged for 2,000 years is that Christians don't believe in the Old Testament or that Christians reject the Old Testament or that Christians spiritualize the Old Testament or that Christians bypass or have forgotten the Old Testament and ignore it altogether. That's not true. Christianity is the fulfillment of the Old Testament and the person of Christ. So that's fallacious. That is a false argument and a false accusation to say that Christians don't believe in the Old Testament, aren't true to the Old Testament. Christianity is the truest religion of all that is most faithful to the Old Testament and its true meaning. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul was arrested and thrown in jail in the book of Acts 
for supposedly ignoring or breaking the Mosaic law. And in the book of Acts, Peter and his associates were thrown in jail for breaking the Mosaic law, supposedly, but they didn't break the Mosaic law. And in the end, according to Matthew 26, the only thing that people could pin on Jesus that would stick to arrest him, to try him, to condemn him, to kill him, was the false accusation that Jesus undermined or broke the Mosaic law. He rejected the Old Testament by compromising it. And that's what it says. That was the charge. He's a blasphemer violating Old Testament law, which is not true. Jesus never broke an Old Testament law. He was perfect. He was sinless. He fulfilled the Old Testament law and all of its requirements to a T like no one in the history of the world. So anyway, with that, let's look at Leviticus 12. Here's what happens when a Jewish couple has a baby. And there's different things needed to be done when you have a baby boy versus a baby girl or your first child versus your next four children. And so that comes out here. Then the Lord Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, Jews, saying, When a woman gives birth and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean. Okay, that doesn't mean sinful in a unique way. It talks about ceremonially unclean. She just kind of needs to take a break to be purified. And the uncleanness primarily comes from all the blood that came at the time of giving birth and labor, which is a result, and all that pain, which is a result of the curse. So ceremonially unclean, not, oh, she's sinful because she gave a child. That's not what it means. Then she shall be unclean for seven days, and as in the days of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. So when the baby's eight days old, the baby needs to be circumcised because that was mandated in the days of Abraham for all Jews to be a part of the covenant community of Israel. Verse 4, Then she shall remain in the blood of her purification for 33 more days. So it was a period of 40 days where she needed to be ceremonially purified from giving birth if she had a baby boy. She shall not touch any consecrated thing nor enter the sanctuary until the days of her purification are completed. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean for two weeks instead of just one week as in her menstruation, and she shall remain in her blood of purification for 66 days instead of just 33. Not that women are have more cooties than boys. It's just simply make, primarily making a distinction between male and female. God makes distinction. We want to blur those lines all throughout history. God's making a clear distinction. There's only two genders, male and female, by God's design. Verse 6, And then when the days of her purification are completed for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring... Uh, to the priest at the door of the tent of meeting, a one-year-old lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. So in Luke chapter 2, where we are, Joseph and Mary, they're doing all this to the T according to the book. It's eight days old, circumcision. Seven days after birth, Mary abstains to be ceremonially clean. 33 days, then they bring the sacrifice. And they were supposed to bring a lamb. Lambs, they were kind of expensive. Have you gone out to dinner and had lamb lately very expensive and that's going to play into here uh when the days of purification are completed for son or daughter she shall bring forth to the priest as a sacrifice uh, a one-year-old lamb for a burnt offering and in addition a pigeon for a sin offering verse 7 then he shall offer it before yahweh and make atonement for her and she shall be cleansed from the flow of her blood this is the law for her 
who bears a child, whether a male or female. Verse 8 is key. But if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two young pigeons, the one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her, and she shall be clean. So you were required to offer a lamb at the end of 40 days. But if you couldn't afford a lamb because you were poor, then instead of the lamb, you would bring another pigeon because pigeons, they're pretty cheap. They're pretty, they're everywhere. And so you could supplant that. So when you go back to Luke chapter 2, you see Joseph and Mary, they're not presenting a lamb. They are presenting two pigeons, which tells us that Joseph and Mary were poor. They didn't have any money. And this is about 40 days after the birth of Christ. And then later on, Matthew tells us that the Magi come after this, probably many months later, and shower Mary and Joseph with all kinds of treasures that they had all kinds of money as a result. But they didn't receive that yet. And so as a result, they are very poor. So go back to Luke chapter 2. So you got circumcision, and then verse 22, and when the days of their purification according to the law of Moses were completed, that's Leviticus chapter 12, they brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Now, another thing, now I want you to flip back to Numbers 18. This is a very unique requirement of the Lord at the time of birth. Looking at verse 15 and 16, according to this law from Moses, the firstborn son that a woman had, she was supposed to give to God, dedicate it to him. And if she wanted it, the ownership rights back for her firstborn son, she had to pay God five shekels of silver to redeem him back. Dedicating it, not meaning having the child sacrificed or anything like that, but just saying, God, this child belongs to you. You own him. And so in Numbers 18, look at verse 15 and 16. Um, starting at verse 14, Every devoted thing in Israel shall be yours. Every first issue of the womb of all flesh, whether man or animal, which they offer to the Lord shall be yours. Nevertheless, the firstborn of man you shall surely redeem. You need to buy that son back. So raise your hand if you're the firstborn male in your family. Okay, then you would have had to be either dedicated to the Lord and said, okay, Lord, this is yours, like uh, Samuel was dedicated to the Lord and God owned him for literally three years. But if you didn't want to do that, if you wanted to buy him back, then you had to pay money and redeem that first child back, which they offer, and that's what it means by redeem. And the firstborn of unclean animals you shall redeem, verse 16, and as to their redemption price from a month old, you shall redeem them by your valuation, five shekels in weight of silver according to the shekel of the sanctuary, which is 20 geras. So many scholars believe here, based on the passage, that Joseph and Mary didn't have five shekels of silver and they didn't redeem Jesus back. What that meant was they dedicated him to the Lord. Lord, he's yours. He's yours. And that's why that phrase is very important in verse 22 of Luke 2, where it says they went to present him to the Lord, to dedicate him to the Lord. And for all we know, he wasn't redeemed back or purchased back. You didn't have to. But if you did, it was a special designation as you were committing that child to the Lord. God owned that child. So that was another law in addition to circumcision and purification. Uh, and then it goes on in Luke chapter 2, uh, and to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And so that's what they did. So here you see Mary and Joseph being very faithful, fastidious, Jews committed to fulfilling all that the Mosaic law required. Not that this would earn any forgiveness, not that this would earn salvation, but it was out of a heart of love and obedience to their Savior who had already saved them by grace through faith. 
And this obedient worship pleased their Savior. And so when you see that all that they go through very rigorously and attentively of the Mosaic law, that's why in verse 39 of Luke chapter 2, now we understand that when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they neglected nothing. Many Jews in their day were neglecting the Mosaic law all over the place. Saw it everywhere. They wouldn't do that. So they were committed to everything that the law of Moses determined. When they had done that, they returned to Galilee to their own city of Nazareth. This means after being around at the temple for over 40 days. And then Matthew tells us that at that time they got notice from an angel to flee to Egypt. They were down there for a while and they came back and then they end up going back up to Nazareth. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but he was raised in Nazareth virtually his whole life because that's where Joseph was from. So now they go back to Nazareth, and he's just a baby, and then 12 years are going to go by. And during this 12-year period, that's verse 40 of Luke chapter 2, during that 12-year period of silence, what happened to Jesus? Here's all that we know. And the child, Hydeon, very specific Greek word in verse 40. It means little boy, little boy. In distinction to verse 43 where he's called an older boy with the Greek word pi. So Jesus, from the time he was a baby and little boy, he continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. And this is a testimony of the fact that Jesus was 100% human. Jesus was 100% God, but he was also 100% human. And so he went through the normal growth process of any other boy, except for the fact that he had no sin. So if you ever wonder, well, I wonder what Jesus was like when he was a little baby. Well, he just like any other baby. He was cute and cuddly and cooed and all the stuff that goes with that and cried and needed nurturing from his parents and his mommy. Well, I wonder what Jesus was like growing up as a little elementary kid, just like any other Jewish elementary kid. Uh, imagination and playing and having fun and laughing, and except he never sinned, never sinned. And remember that Joseph and Mary... Uh, Joseph kept Mary a virgin until Jesus was born. And then after Jesus was born, Joseph and Mary consummated their relationship with physical sexual intimacy. And they had several other children together. So Jesus had younger brothers and sisters. And those brothers and sisters were normal humans. They were sinful. Four or five brothers and sisters growing up in a home with Jesus, the perfect God-man. Can you imagine your older brother who was perfect and never sinned? Wouldn't that be frustrating? Jesus never gets in trouble. Yeah, well, that's because he's perfect and sinless. What about it? <laughs> Undeniable. So the tattletailing just didn't fly in their house. Ever. They didn't even have to see what went on. And that's the point in verse 40. That's the theme of Luke is that Jesus, yes, the God-man, but Jesus, Son of Man, 100% human because he had to be human to be the perfect substitute for sinful human beings. And that's why that verse in verse 40 is so important. He just grew and increased in strength and he grew in wisdom. Jesus was almighty God in a body. God is infinite in knowledge. God is omniscient. Jesus, one of Jesus' attributes is that he's omniscient. Before Jesus came down to earth and Mary, Jesus didn't have a body and he was omniscient with the Father. He knew everything. Jesus right now in his glorified body in heaven is omniscient. Jesus knows everything. While Jesus was on earth, there were times that he was omniscient and it was affirmed by people around him who knew it. I think of John chapter 21 where Peter told Jesus, Lord, you know all things. That was before he ascended into heaven. 
And somehow, it's a mystery, I can't explain it. As the human Jesus, He grew and developed and matured and He even increased and developed in His wisdom. The omniscient God was increasing in His wisdom as the God-man. I don't know how that worked other than Jesus willingly laid aside the autonomous exercise of the attributes that were rightfully His and submitted those to the Holy Spirit and to the Father and in submission to the Holy Spirit and the Father throughout His ministry, then He would exercise those attributes as long as they attended to, supported the ministry God the Father had for Him during the course of His lifetime. So Jesus was omniscient, had access to the attribute of omniscience, and at the same time grew in His humanness in terms of His wisdom. And by the way, it was perfect wisdom. Wisdom never known in the history of man because Jesus was sinless. And so... The little boy Jesus continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom and the grace of God. The Father was upon him and his parents used to go to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. Here they are again, these faithful Jews growing up Jewish, committed to the law of God. God's law, the Old Testament law, Deuteronomy 16, the book of Exodus, chapter 23 and several other places uh, made it clear that where God said, you males, Jewish faithful males among you, three times a year, need to go to Jerusalem, the capital city, to worship me. Three major holidays of the year. The females did not have to go. That was not required of them. And many of the people who were Jews didn't make it three times a year. Many just said, oh, I'm just going to go at Passover because that's the biggest one of the year. I live too far away. I live up here in Dan and there's too much traffic. It'll take too long and I'll be gone too long. And that wasn't true of Joseph and Mary. They honored all the feasts of the Lord. They honored the Passover every single year. It happened in springtime, our March and April. And here it's true of them. Once again, as was their custom, doing it every year, they're doing it again, the time of the Passover. His parents used to go to Jerusalem every single year at the Feast of the Passover. So you had the Feast of the Passover, which was the biggest holiday of the year, where a lamb was a perfect, sinless male lamb, was slaughtered put to death as a substitute for the sin of the people. That was the holiday of the Passover. Jesus died during Passover week. That is not a coincidence. John the Baptist, the first thing he ever said when he saw Jesus publicly, pointed his finger at Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God, the perfect sinless substitute for sinners. The Passover feast was all about the Lamb of God. It was all about Jesus Christ. So that's why this holiday was so important. So they'd go to the Passover every year. And so they traveled 80 miles from Nazareth down to Jerusalem. It was very rough. It was very dangerous. And so they traveled in a big caravan. And that provided protection along the way from highway robbers and pirates that were common and frequent. Providing fellowship as well. So Joseph and Mary and the family and Jesus are going to come down and celebrate the Passover. Verse 41, his parents used to go to the, uh, Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. Verse 42, and when he became 12. So this incident happened when he was 12 years old. <clears throat> coming to celebrate a Passover. And when he became 12, they went up there. Uh, you go up, literally, a mountain to get to Jerusalem from wherever you are there in Israel. So they went up there according to the custom of the feast as it was in the Mosaic laws required by God's Word. And as they were returning 
after spending the full number of days. Once again, that phrase is very important. After spending the full number of days, what does that mean? That Joseph and Mary were faithful and obedient to the Mosaic Law because the Mosaic Law required, Deuteronomy 16, Exodus 23, that you, the males travel to Jerusalem, you celebrate the Passover, you spend your own money and you buy a lamb to be sacrificed in your behalf. And they, Mary went with Joseph. Going above and beyond what was required because of her love and devotion for Yahweh and bringing the whole family. And so you have the Passover. Then after the Passover, you have seven days of unleavened bread. So this feast actually lasted eight days. Many people didn't stay eight days. Oh, I've got to get back to work. This is taking too long. I've got family back. My, my wife is back home. So many would depart early. Not Joseph and Mary. They stayed the entire eight days for this feast as was required by the Mosaic Law. So once again, you see the faithfulness of them as pious Jews. And then after the eight days, they returned back to Nazareth. So there's Jesus who comes from Mary and Joseph, these wonderfully gracious, faithful Jews who had a personal relationship with Yahweh. And I think one of the things that God's trying to accent and highlight for us here to remind us of as believers is that Christianity did not start with religious apostasy in opposition to the law of God. It did not start, its origin is not in religious apostasy, abandoning the law of God. On the contrary, biblical Christianity is just the opposite. It started with religious piety in honor and submission to the law of God as modeled by Joseph and Mary and their family. That's the legacy. That is the history of our religion. There's this beautiful continuity between New Testament Christianity and true Old Testament religion. It's all one religion, all pointing up and leading to and culminating in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus had to be Jew, a complete and full Jew, a human Jew, and a sinless Jew at that, fulfilling all righteousness. And the story goes on. Let's go on to point number two after growing up Jewish. Lost and found, 43 to 47. No doubt you have heard of the movie Home Alone. And then Home Alone 1 and Home Alone 2 and Home Alone 3 and Home Alone 4, 5, and 6 and 7 and on and on. And it spoils the story. But anyway, Home Alone just a famous movie where you've got your big family. It's the holidays and they're in a rush and they leave. And later on they find out, oops. Or a little boy is missing. Where is he? I thought he was with you. I thought he was with you. And they start blaming each other. Well, that's, they stole that story from Luke chapter 2. Because <laughs> that is exactly what happened. It's a holiday. It's a feast day. This is the most populated feast in Jerusalem in the year. People are buzzing. They pilgrims from all over the place. It lasts a week. The temple is just crowded. Uh, Roman soldiers and, and the police are on high alert and there's even more of them in town as well to watch out and maintain the crowds. They traveled with a huge caravan of people and relatives. And so when it's time to leave, after celebrating eight days, the Passover and unleavened bread, they all pack up their camels and their donkeys and whatever else. And who knows how large this crowd was, but it was big enough to just kind of, okay, I think uh, Jesus was with Aunt uh, Anna. Or, you know, Mary's probably thinking, oh, Joseph's got him. And then Joseph's thinking, oh, yeah, mother. Mother's got him, no doubt. He's 12. And so we are lost and found. And here's what happened. They start heading back to Nazareth 
from Jerusalem. And get this, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem and his parents were unaware of it. If you were a parent, I don't know if this has ever happened to you. This happened to us a couple of times. And it always seemed to be at churches we were at. Uh, I think the first time it happened is one of our older daughters when she was about three and we were in Texas and I was a pastor there and we had Sunday school and then we had church and so we had the Sunday school hour and then we had church. They didn't have children's church at this church. So we're all sitting there and so the kids were always with us and Debbie and I are sitting there and we're halfway through the sermon and there's Carissa and there's Timmy and there's Rustin. And, no, Rustin wasn't born yet. There's Carissa and there's Timmy and where's Brianna, the three-year-old? Yikes. Oh, she must be working in the nursery. Well, no, she's only three. <laughs> and she's always with it. Panic. So then Debbie elbows me on a little white card. It wasn't a prayer. It was, where's Brianna? Uh, I thought she was with you. Panic. And we quietly exit and leave the sermon. pastor thought that was rude. Uh, then we find out we, we left Brianna at home. We left her at home. So she was there for about three or four hours. We get home and man, she's still playing with her little ponies. Didn't even know that we were gone. <laughs> we're crying. We're having a nervous breakdown. She's as happy as can be with her. I forgot what those ponies were called. But anyway, and we did that once to one of our sons, too. Terrible parents. Oh, that was, we left him at church. That was right. And we went home. So Jesus gets left behind. Uh, actually, Jesus wasn't left behind. Jesus stayed behind. There's a difference there. Verse 44, but uh, the parents, Joseph and Mary, supposed Jesus to be in a caravan. Huge crowd of people. And went a day, so they traveled an entire day. This was like a three to four day journey from Jerusalem to Nazareth. So they go an entire day. And when a day's journey, so probably when they stopped and it was dark and it's time for Betty by and want to pray with the family, where, wow, where's Jesus? They began looking for Jesus among their relatives and acquaintances, verse 45, and when they, they didn't find him, they returned to Jerusalem. So, you know, you can imagine the utter panic when they are a day's journey away on this dangerous highway and, and Jesus is not with them and they are in utter panic. The emotions have reached their zenith. We know that because it says later on in the text, this anxiety. They, they were overwhelmed with fearful anxiety at the loss of their 12-year-old son. So immediately they return to Jerusalem. It's going to take them another day to get back there, which means Jesus would be lost for at least two days. It turns out they go back to Jerusalem. Can't find him immediately. They spend an entire third day looking for him. So they were without Jesus for three days. Overwhelmed with anxiety and fear and horrible thoughts by this time. Looking for him in verse 46. And it came about after three days they found him in the temple. So they finally decided to look in the temple. That's probably the last place they looked. Found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to him and asking them questions. Verse 47, and all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Uh, a couple things I want to note here in this passage. Uh, in verse 43, it says the boy Jesus. Or earlier, verse 40, it said the child. That's the little boy. This is a different word. He is now 12 years old. In the Jewish culture, you're on the brink of manlyhood at age 12. Today, they have their bar mitzvah when they're recognized as a young man. And that was true in Jesus' day as well. It was a rite of passage in le le uh, getting to a certain age of maturity. And so that's why he's called the boy or the young man, really. So the young man, Jesus, 
So he's recognized as a young man. And as a young man now, this is an important time in the life of Christ because according to the Scriptures and the fact that he kept growing and increasing in wisdom, it says two times at the beginning and the end of this passage, also it calls him a young man or a young, uh, uh, an older boy. Is that in his awareness and the way he responds to his mother, we realize that Jesus has matured to a certain critical point now. And he has a conscious awareness of finally who he is and what his mission is. I believe it was here at age 12 where Jesus fully began to realize his true identity and his mission in life. He didn't understand all the intricacies and details that were yet to come in his public ministry, but he understood who his unique identity and his call of his father, God. That's the point of this passage. Another significant thing in verse 43, it says Jesus stayed behind. It wasn't Jesus was left behind. Jesus was lost. Jesus was neglected. Jesus stayed behind. He made a willful, conscious choice to stay behind. Not to hurt his parents. Not to disobey his parents. He made a willful choice to stay behind. To spend time in the temple with the greatest teachers the land of Israel possessed. Jesus wouldn't find the quality and the kind and trained teachers in his synagogue in Nazareth that he could find in Jerusalem, especially in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. And this feast of all feasts was the feast of Jesus, the Passover, the Lamb of God. And so all of this is coalescing and comes to a climax in Jesus' mind through the revelation of the Spirit of God that this is his moment. Understanding his identity in a new, fuller way. And so he decided to stay behind at the anxiety of his parents, but in obedience to God the Father and the Holy Spirit. He stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents weren't aware of it. It's purposeful that his parents weren't aware of it because they needed to learn a lesson. From the time that Jesus was to be born, Mary is revealed as an ignorant human being on many levels in terms of not understanding all these amazing mysteries about the Messiah. And that's why over and over again we see that something happens or a revelation is given to Mary and it says she didn't understand these things. She didn't understand these things. And she treasured these words of the angel or the prophet in her heart. And she stored them up in her heart. And she never forgot those things. And she couldn't define or give meaning to them the entire 33 years of Jesus' life for many of them And it wasn't until Jesus was crucified, risen from the dead, appeared to her personally, ascended into heaven, where the light went on fully for Mary, where finally she has come to the real, full understanding of all these things that she didn't quite understand that were hidden in the shadows when he was born and when he was 12 and at the beginning of his ministry. And that's what's going on here. God wants to teach Mary. And she was a teachable woman of God. So the parents supposed Jesus to be in the caravan when a day's journey began looking for him. Find him, verse 46, came about after three days. They found him in the temple. And again, this is where Jesus should be. Jesus calls the temple, this is his house. This is the house of God. This is the house of my father. This is the house of the Messiah. This is the house where animals are sacrificed to appease and atone for sin. I am the ultimate and final sacrifice for the sins of humanity. This is my temple. This is my father's temple. This is where I should be. So they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers. And by the way, these were the greatest of Old Test- or Israel, Israel's teachers. And Jesus is sitting there as a 12-year-old boy, listening to them attentively and asking them questions. And not just because he's ignorant trying to get information. His questions are astounding. His questions are amazing. His questions are penetrating. And his questions are throwing these teachers off. His questions are so deep they don't get it. 
That's why in the next verse it says, when they heard him asking, they were amazed. They were dumbfounded. Literally, they were beside themselves. Who was who this 12-year-old boy? What in the world? Where is he getting this stuff? Who taught him? What synagogue is he? Who's his rabbi? And he was stumping the greatest of Israel's teachers at the time because of his insight into the Scriptures of the Word of God because he was the God-man. He was the Messiah. He was the theme of the Old Testament. These Scripture passages that you're studying and talking about, these are about me. We don't know exactly what he said. That's not important. The point is, is that they were amazed at his understanding and his understanding of the Scriptures, the Word of God that were about him. And this is a precursor to how Jesus would interact with these future teachers of Israel in the temple 18 years later when he goes public in his ministry. And they were always at odds with Jesus. And when Jesus begins his ministry, he is the teacher. And he is always the teacher, the master teacher of the Old Testament. And so they finally find Jesus. So let's go to the last point there. After Joseph and Mary find Jesus, now it culminates with the main point of the passage in verse 49. So leading up to that, verse 48, and when they saw him. So finally, Joseph and Mary, they saw him. And the first thing was astonishment. It's like, wow, I can't believe he's here in the temple. Who knows what they, what they were astonished about. But this is a very strong compound Greek word. They were astonished beyond all that they could bear or handle. It, probably out of frustration. I cannot believe... We've been looking for three days. Wow, there he is sitting calmly and casually and comfortably in the temple interacting and talking. And here we have been anxiously looking at him for three days thinking who knows what. So Joseph and Mary, they are astonished. They are anxious. They are pained. That's the Greek word. Pained. They are fearful. And now probably there's a sense of frustration. Wow. There's relief, but there's frustration. You hear it in Mary's voice and in her question. So let's look at those. When they saw Jesus, they were astonished. And his mother, his human mother, Mary said to him, Son, technon is the word here for child. Son, why have you treated us this way? Why have you treated us, uh, your father and I, this way? That means, why have you disrespected us? Why have you dishonored us? This is a mild rebuke coming from Mary. She's basically accusing Jesus of disobedience. She's accusing Jesus of sin. This would be unique for Mary because he had never sinned up to this point for 12 years of living in her house. That's probably part of the astonishment. Wow, Jesus has never behaved this way before. The perfect child. Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, behold, your father and I... Your father, Joseph, and I. Jesus is going to take issue with that phrase. Your father. Joseph was not Jesus' father. Jesus had no human father. He was born of a virgin. Your father and I, and the implication here, your father and I have all authority over you. You have to report to us for all things. We always have to know your whereabouts. You're under our jurisdiction. Behold, your father and I have been anxiously pained, suffering, looking for you. And then this amazing statement in verse 49, which is the point of the whole passage. Jesus doesn't apologize. Oh, I'm sorry, Mom. should have told you. It's actually shocking and startling what he says. It's unexpected what Jesus says. And that's always true when I'm reading the Gospels. And the response that comes from Jesus is usually something I don't expect someone to say or him. 
And that's what happens here. Jesus said to them, Jesus is talking to Mary and Joseph, pointedly, face-to-face, probably eye contact. And here's the lesson that Jesus, the 12-year-old, the God-man, the Messiah, wanted to teach his mother. That a transition is happening. I understand my calling and my mission. And Jesus responded and said to them, why is it that you... And that's classic of Jesus to do. When somebody, a critic or somebody asks him a question, Jesus, Jesus usually responds with a question. And the same is here. Why is it that you were, you plural in the Greek, why is it that you and Joseph were looking for me? You should know better. Remember at the birth when Gabriel told you, Mom, Mary, that this child will be unique? I was born supernaturally. I was born of a virgin and fulfilling of Scripture. Isaiah said that my name would be called Emmanuel, God with us. The angel said that I would be called the Son of God in Luke one thirty-five. The Son of God. Those are some of the things that Mary treasured in her heart that she didn't understand. What does it mean when Gabriel said, He's the Son of God, He's born of the Most High, He's born of a virgin in fulfillment of the Scriptures, God with us? She didn't know. But Luke one, Luke two nineteen says she treasured up those things in her heart, contemplating those things, mulling those over. And Jesus is trying to point out, here's what it meant. Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? Joseph is not my father. God, the fa- God is my father. This is startling. As far as we know, this is the first time in all of Scripture where some person claimed God to be their personal father. That had never happened in the history of Israel as far as we know. It certainly doesn't happen anywhere in revealed Scripture. This is what would get Jesus in trouble during His ministry when He started going around publicly saying that God is my Father. He did that in John chapter 6, verse 38. I came to not do my will, but only the will of my Father who is in heaven. And it says, that, and also he did that in John chapter 5, 18 as well. And when he said that, it said, from that day forward, the Jews sought to kill him. Because he was, John 10 tells us, when he said that, when he called God his Father, I am the Son of God, God is my Father. No one ever said that. And what that meant, Jesus was claiming equality with God. When Jesus said He was the Son of God, He was claiming to have the same nature as God. Jesus was claiming to be deity. And intimate in His personal relationship with the Father. In the mind of the Jews of Jesus' day, that was blasphemy and that warranted the death penalty. So the same reaction. I mean, the the rabbis sitting around in the huddle and hearing Jesus say this to His parents and His parents hearing this were probably shocked. Wow! No, not probably. They were. Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? So this is where we see Jesus comes to this almost full awareness of his unique relationship as the son of God, as the Messiah in fulfillment of scripture. And he has a special mission and he has to wean himself away from his mom and dad and little by little and incrementally from their authority and jurisdiction to a certain degree in terms of his identity, his relational familial identity. My true father, my intimate father is God almighty. Verse 50, they didn't understand what he was saying. They did not understand the statement which he had made to them. They were probably just in utter shock. Verse 51, but he went with them at that point. Now, people are going to confuse or or uh, convict Jesus or accuse him of sinning by being disobedient. He wasn't disobedient. He was doing exactly what God the Father wanted him to do. And that's why verse 51, Luke puts in verse 51. 
uh, Jesus went down with his parents, Joseph and Mary, came to Nazareth, and he continued as had been his pattern in subjection to them, in submission to them. Jesus believed in the fifth commandment, honor your parents, submit to your parents, respect your parents. He did that for 12 years. He did that here. He did that for the rest of his life until he left home when he was age 30. He was a model, an exemplary model of submitting to one's parents and respecting them. But any time his relationship with his family or his parents interfered with his higher calling of his relationship to fulfill obedience of the Father's command, then he had to deviate from human family to obey God Almighty. And to us on the human level, it looked disrespectful and it looked disobedient, but it wasn't. Because obedience to God the Father is the higher perfect calling. So he continued in subjection to Mary and Joseph and his mother, Mary, she just saw all this. She heard what was said. She's now enlightened with more information. Again, she's got that soft, tender heart, that contemplative mind, and she treasures up more information in her heart of these mysteries about her amazing son who is the Messiah. Living in faith for the next 18 years until it's revealed who she is. Just a couple other comments uh, at different times in Jesus' life when he shocked people and shocked Mary with these revelations that he was the Messiah and the God-man and had a higher calling. One was that when he, in John 2, I'll just read it, the story where he did his first miracle of turning water into wine and he's at the wedding. They ran out of wine. Mary apparently is an important person at this wedding. And so she, she's thinking, oh, we ran out of wine. I'll go talk to Jesus, my 30-year-old son, see what he can do about it. So when the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to Jesus, they have no wine. And then Jesus said to her, oh, he didn't say, oh, okay, mom, let me, let me get at what do you want me to do? It's this shocking response. And Jesus said to Mary, woman? Wow. He didn't say mom. That's gune is the Greek word, gune. Not guni, gune. It is a term of respect, but it's a term of distance. Woman is something you would say respectfully to a lady on the street you don't know Intimately. Or somebody that you kind of casually see every once in a while. Woman, what do I have to do with you? And Jesus was revealing a little bit to Mary, I have a higher calling. And then there was another incident in the life of Christ where uh, Jesus is out doing ministry and doing miracles and he's in somebody's house and then somebody comes and says, Hey, Jesus, uh, your mother and your brothers are outside. They want to see you. And Jesus, he didn't say, Oh, okay. Tell mama, mama, wait. He said, who are, who are my mother and my brothers? Why are they special? They're not. They are humans just like everybody else. So we see this periodically in Jesus' ministry. Of this, He's revealing new truth. And it had to start with Mary, his human mother who loved him dearly and saw his unique growing up and development. And she treasures all these things in her heart. And verse 52, it concludes by saying, Jesus kept increasing in wisdom from the time he was 12 and stature, that's his physical development and his maturity all around. And he uh, grew in favor with God, that's spiritually with the Father, was pleased with him in the way he grew. And he also increased with favor among men during those 18 years. In other words, in his community and as a carpenter, and uh, people respected him. He was just rock solid. Well, he was the Messiah and sinless, but a man of the fullest integrity. And so he just had beautifully perfect, balanced maturity in every area of his life. And God uses this incident at age 12 to prepare him for ministry and prepare him to make that break when it was time from his dear human mother, Mary, and she willingly released him and let him go. 
And then probably as Mary was standing at the cross when Jesus was 33 years old, as most had abandoned Him, she's literally at the foot of the cross watching her son with nails in his hands and in his feet, suffering, bleeding on the cross for six hours, saying very few things. Can you imagine the grief that she went through? And probably she remembered at that time the words of Simeon the prophet who said when Jesus was born in the temple and prayed over Jesus as He held Jesus and prophesied and spoke to Mary and Joseph and said, Behold, this is the Messiah. He's going to be a light to the world and a light to the Gentiles even. He is the glory of the people of Israel. And yet Mary, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rise of many. People will fall and stumble over this child. People who reject Jesus Christ will fall. They will stumble. They will reject. They will be punished. They will hate Him. Many will fall but many will rise. Those who believe in Jesus as the Messiah, they will be lifted up. They will be exalted. They'll be forgiven of their sins. And then Simeon says this, and a sword will pierce even your own soul, Mary. Regarding this child, you're going to be pierced to the soul regarding this child all the days of your life and it's going to culminate in the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was probably at that time where Mary realized the prophecy that Simeon had spoken or she understood. Now I understand. My son is the God-man, Savior of the world, who willingly came to be crucified and pierced for the sins of anyone who would put their faith in Him as their substitute, the Lamb of God, the only source of forgiveness and spiritual life in this world. With that, let's go ahead and pray to the Father and thank Him for His Word. Father, we do thank You for Your Word. Well, thank You for this story that You have preserved Thank you for the many practical lessons in it and also just amazing details that so much you left out and but certain things you wanted in there for us to remember and to observe and be edified from. We thank you that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God. Savior of sinners, of those who put their faith and trust in Him. And we thank you for that greatest of all truths. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.